It was one of those events that I never thought would come. I had the privilege of knowing and meeting a couple that felt the call of the Lord for them to go and to minister in a Muslim country, all for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. And so dynamic was this individual that we thought to name our son after him. Stephanos, messenger of God. I remember getting letters and emails and such as that from the field that they were at. I can't tell you what field they were at for uh, that would be their life if I did. And it seemed that all things were going well. In fact, there was a, a moment of time that we saw God move so dynamically in their lives because when they were here in stateside, the individual's wife could not have children. The doctors proclaimed that it was impossible for her to have children. And so they adopted a child. And when they got to this country, there was, they met a doctor that was there that through some kind of treatments, all of a sudden, she was able to bear a child. We rejoiced with them. We thought how fantastic that God is. They ministered for a great number of years in the country that they were at, and they were faithful in establishing underground churches. Policemen and military knew who they were, but yet God's protective hand was against them, that nothing happened. But there was a time when they thought, it was safe for them that they had better leave the country. And they did. And they came home and settled back in their home village, which is near the area where our daughter and son-in-law live outside of Pittsburgh in an area called Beaver Falls. I remember when we were able to go and visit our daughter for an event, I don't know what the event was, but we went to church with them and I was able to see this individual. I was ecstatic to be able to go up to him and shake his hand and give him a hug. And in our conversation, I, I asked him, I, I don't see your wife, where is she? His words haunt me today he said she left me didn't know why she decided that with God I had enough I'm done to this day she presently is living a lifestyle that is totally contrary to what we thought she would live. All I remember for that whole service that we were in, the worship service, is I wept. I wept because I wondered 
what would happen to me? What would need to happen to me for me to say to God, I'm done. I'm finished. I'm going to walk away. Would it be the death of one of my children? Would it be a loss of employment? Would it be a determination of following a different lifestyle? What would cause me to say, I've had enough, God? I don't know if you've thought about that. We live in a pretty sheltered culture here. I've read numerous testimonies of Muslims who have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and how their lives, they walk every day with a death sentence on their heads. One individual said, I was a trash collector before I came to know Jesus, and I'm a trash collector for Jesus now. He lives on the streets. He cannot see his wife or children for fear that he would be killed. He can't leave his country because his government will not give him a visa. And the question was posed to him, is it worth it? He said, I've never regretted a day since Jesus saved me. What would it take for you to be willing to say, I've had enough, and walk away? That is the theme, or the underlying current, if you will, of why the book of Hebrews was written. The book of Hebrews was written for the purpose to encourage those who were at that point of saying, I've had enough. I'm going to go back. I'm going to relinquish this thing called Christianity and become part of the world system, the religious system at that time. I don't know if we can fully blame them because I don't know what it's like to be a target of the government. I don't know what it's like to be a target of the, quote, established church or synagogue. These first century Christians that were written to in the book of Hebrews had death sentences written about them from the Roman government. They would have been taken and slaughtered by the hundreds, if not yet the thousands. They would have been tied to posts, doused in a flammable liquid, and touched with a flame, and they became the night torches on the streets of Rome. And they couldn't find too much consolation in the Jewish synagogue because at that time the Jews were against them also. So they found themselves in a situation of between what we call the proverbial rock and a hard place. 
and they wanted to go back. They had enough. From chapter 1 to chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews, the writer is describing for them the betterness, or if you will, the perfectness of who Jesus Christ is. In chapter 1, Jesus is better than the angels. In chapter 2, Jesus is mightier than death and the devil. In chapter 3, he is more worthy than Moses. In chapter 4, Jesus is our compassionate high priest. In chapter 5, Jesus is the fulfillment of a high priest. In chapter 6, Jesus is greater than Abraham. In chapter 7, he's better than Melchizedek. Chapter 8, Jesus is the giver of the new covenant. In chapter 9, Jesus is the great sacrifice. In chapter 10, Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. Then in chapter 11, from that which we have been hunkered down for a while, we find out that it, the examples of faith and what God can do. Abel's life, his faith, left a legacy. Enoch's faith walked with God. Noah's faith obeyed God when even the circumstances of life didn't make much sense. Abraham went beyond boundaries of both the unseen and seen, both the physical and the relational. Moses, his faith developed in him to be a leader. Joshua was used by God in his faith as a nation of Israel. The walls of Jericho came down. Rahab's faith is that she trusted in a God that she heard of and now she had seen. The narrative of Hebrews chapter 11, beginning at verse 34, introduces seven individuals that not much commentary about them is developed, only the fact, as it is listed here, that it says, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the sword or the edge of the sword, out of a weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to fight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life. Others were tortured. We've come to understand that we don't mind focusing in on faith as it is active. The kind of faith that we've been focusing in on is an act of faith that God equips us to do great and mighty things. It's a kind of faith that the world does not understand. To them, it is foolishness. A type of faith that we've just read subdues kingdoms. 
the author of the book of Hebrews begins his last section by saying, I don't have enough time to write concerning these people. I'll give you a quick overview of what they've done. In the study of the book of Hebrews chapter 11, you'll notice it's a commentary from the very beginning of the not-so-New Testament to the very end. It covers a multitude of years of history of God's faithfulness and how God's people overcame odds that were insurmountable at times. That's active faith. But our faith is also passive. It's not a passivity that we sit back and do nothing because the chapter closes with a description of it being passive in the fact that God gives us enough faith to endure life situations that are not pleasable. The list is long and it's intensive. If it would be read, I think, over the waves, it would be first preceded by the words that we're about to hear are for adult ears only. But God doesn't make mistakes, and so they're listed here for us in the fact that it says in verse 35, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had a trial of markings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn into, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. To be able to endure what the world would dish out is the question we have to ask ourselves. What would it take for me to turn my back on God? It's amazing, though, that as the world looked at these individuals as being worthless, God had a different description for them. What the world thought to be worthless, God said the world wasn't worthy to have them. The world, the people that they ministered amongst and individuals that mocked them and scourged them, stoned them, left them for dead, God said that you weren't even worthy to hear what they had to say. But they didn't give up. They, they didn't give up because the chapter closes with the reason why they didn't get up. And they didn't give up. It says they looked for something else. They looked for another city. In other words, they knew they weren't home yet. 
They knew that God had something a whole lot better for them, waiting for them, though they have not yet seen it, but they anticipated it by the faith of their eyes. They looked for a new city. But what's dynamic is that the writer of Hebrews not only covers a historical fact, but he also ties it together with a very present application by saying, but they haven't got it all yet because you haven't joined them yet. They're not going to be perfected without you. In other words, God is still at work in and amongst us. God still calls us, and he wants us to walk by faith. The descriptiveness of that is the faith is the substance of things that are hoped for. That's the foundation. But it's evidence in our lives because it is the, those things that we know and trust. Even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of loss of life, the writer of Hebrews says, keep going. Keep going. A professor that I had the privilege of being under for two semesters. His name, Haddon Robinson. Maybe some of you are familiar with his name. He wrote an interesting article, but the article closes with a dynamic statement. I have to read it for you. It says this. If you think that Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to them who love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. If you think that is a promise that you'll have a middle-class life in a lovely little church in a nice little town where you may even get a pass to the country club, he says, you're wrong. Paul did not promise that. I came across an article today. The title caught my eye. I couldn't go away from it because I wanted to see what it had to say. The title is, I'm a pastor. And I want you to quit church now. I could have thrown it off as being a ridiculous article, but the title captured my thought. Interesting thing about the title and the, and the article itself is it relates to Romans chapter 11, or Hebrews chapter 11. He writes these words. He says, at the time when church attendance is shrinking in America, I, a pastor, am encouraging people to quit.
quit church. Why? The answer is birthed out of a conversation and research I've been a part of over the last several years. In most churches, 80% of the people work and 20% don't. We become a church of spectators and the pastoral staff is getting burned out. According to my own personal research, the problems are even greater than the 80-20 principle. Only 39% of active believers consider the Bible as the literal word of God. Less than 20% of professing believers follow the biblical principle of giving. Only 5% have shared their faith with a non-believer. More than half of all church members attend a church once a month or less. Something has to change. Casual attendance and the belief that others will serve, give, and share the gospel are tearing down the church across our country brick by brick. As believers, it's time that we either are all in or we get out. The solution is simple. Quit. That's right, quit. If we put the casual way of we approach God's principles, can you imagine what would happen in our personal walk of faith and in our community of believers? What if every believer exercised generosity? What if every Christian fought for loyalty in the local church? What if every Christian served in their God-given purpose? What would happen if we stopped simply believing and started belonging? If we could only quit the way we approach our relationship to Christ and our local church, the blessing, the reward, the joy, the fulfillment, the purpose, and the increase would radically transform our lives and the world. Together, we can revolutionize the church. But the only way we can do it is if we quit. The truth is, if we don't feel passionate about something, we don't do it. If we don't like something that happens in the church, we find another one. If the spiritual practices don't fit our lifestyle, then we don't do them. The mindset permeates our I want it now and I want it my way culture and is only enforced through social media, website choices, TV options, and countless other platforms that have been risen in prominence of our lives. This is not the way God intended the church to live. The local church isn't a building. It's a body of believers fulfilling God's purpose in our lives. And when these believers approach their individual involvement and commitment in a casual manner, it weakens the entire body of Christ and the impact we are called to have. And the result, we lose. And so does the local church. He finishes his article by saying, 
Jesus felt the church was worth dying for. It should be our mission as Christians to value living for it. What would it take in this world for you to say to God, I'm done. I can't take it anymore. I'm finished. That's what the first century church was facing. And I'm ultimately afraid that that's what we still battle with, even today. Remember Romans 8, 28. Was it written for us to have a house, a good job, a country club pass? It was written that even in the midst of the darkest turmoils, God is worth living for. Let's pray. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Be thou our guide while life should last in our eternal home. May we, O oh God, be active in our faith and also passive. Active that when it comes time to move, that you direct us to move, we would do so unequivocally and unquestionably following your direction. And even in the moments of passivity, Lord, our faith is to endure. Endure the hardships of life. Realizing that we're not yet home. Your mission here on this earth is not yet finished. And until you safely call us home, at all cost, O oh God, may we live for your honor and for your glory. Receive from us today, O oh Lord, hearts that would just cry out to you. Lord, I'm all in, no matter what. For your glory. Amen.